This is The Thomas Guide, your roadmap for navigating the world. With your guide, John Thomas, political savant, world-class analyst, and culture critic. No need to Google directions. Just buckle up and enjoy the ride. This is The Thomas Guide with your host, John Thomas. Ernie's blowout rally in New York, 25,000 attendees. Does it matter? And was there a quid pro quo? And is Mick Mulvaney really screwed? He backtracks on Sunday, we'll break all that down. And President Trump reverses his decision to hold the G7 summit at a Trump resort. Why and was it smart? AOC makes the argument for charter schools? Huh? And the mayor of San Juan, Carmen Cruz, says something that uh, is pushing the envelope a little too far in climate change. Kamala Harris chokes on CNN. You're not going to want to miss what she did. Stay tuned. Welcome back to this episode of The Thomas Guide. I hope you had a great weekend. I'm John Thomas, your political strategist. We've had a little bit of news over the weekend, so I can't wait to get to it. First, Bernie Sanders had a blowout rally in New York with over 25, an estimated 25,000 attendees. This is where AOC and the squad endorsed him. It is arguably the biggest rally that any Democrat has had so far in the cycle. First, first of all, does it matter? Does this mean that Bernie's back? Uh, yes and no. Uh, it is impressive that he could gather that many people, especially at this point in his campaign where he had health issues. Uh, in fact, more than that, he had a heart attack as well as two stents implanted. He had to temporarily suspend his campaign for a week. He's been stagnant in the polls hovering around 10 to 12%, uh, depending on the polls. The only thing that's been vibrant to this point has been his small donor army. They seem to be with him, but don't donors don't necessarily equal voters. It's not, not one way or another. So question is, do crowd sizes matter? Uh, it can speak to intensity and enthusiasm. We've, we've discussed this before. It doesn't actually mean you're winning or losing. You can't really look at that. but very often the candidate that does have crowd sizes is winning at a, at a race of this size, typically a, a race for president or Senate or governor, or a high profile contest like those. You can't be winning without having intensity. Therefore you, you know, you, you, you're going to have crowd sizes, but crowd sizes doesn't necessarily indicate winning um because the people who come to rallies are the people that are most excited about you it's not necessarily the people sitting home on their couch that are still going to vote but would never go to a rally so it's 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 hard to say uh, you do have to give trump credit i mean he has an ability with rallies to do a couple things first uh drive media coverage both nationally but more importantly when he comes to town because he's the big story he drives media coverage for about two to three days, a day or so leading up to the event, during the event, and then after the event. And that's pretty powerful to have every single major media outlet in a state all focused on one thing, and that is Donald Trump and what he said in your state. That's 
pretty powerful. And the other thing that the rallies that Trump people do at the rallies, I'm trying to find out if Sanders or the other Democrats are doing this, uh, which is if you enter, they do something called geofencing and tagging. Uh, the Wall Street Journal wrote a good piece about this. Uh, we've been doing this for years on our campaigns, but of course, you know, your standard congressional or governor's race can't draw 50,000 people or 20,000 people. So the numbers are smaller, but essentially we dodge, we draw these digital nets around a geographical area, for instance, a rally. And then anybody who enters the premise has their phone tagged with an ID number. And we're able to then track them and follow them even after they leave the event with advertising, emails. Um, and so we can harass them essentially to make sure they vote, to continue to persuade them. It's really like a turnout tool uh, where you can say, hey, look, these people are probably on my candidate's side, but I'm going to make sure that they remain engaged, enthusiastic, and they absolutely vote. And the other thing that the Trump campaign is doing that's pretty cool is they are getting gathering with this geofencing and targeting. They're gathering demographic information about the people that are entering the premise. Uh, well, that's actually pretty cool and very, very useful because they can see if they're moving numbers and are they drawing the same old people to every rally or are they drawing the demographics that they're looking, the swing voters or blue collar Democrats they're looking to persuade. They have that information. Then of course, if they can coax them to the rally, they can then they've got their personal info because of this geofencing. And they can harass them and continue to work them and work them and work them uh, with advertising. It's uh, it's pretty powerful stuff. I would imagine Bernie Sanders people, this is not rocket science at a high level. I'm sure the Sanders people are doing it. So again, I don't think this really changes anything for Bernie, but it does mean that he's really not going anywhere, at least in the short term, because there is some enthusiasm. Now, he's in liberal New York, so he could draw these kinds of crowds, but still. It's impressive. And it likely speaks to the fact that his small donors are going to be charged up and still giving him $5, at least for the next few months, which allows him to endure a campaign. I think Bernie's biggest challenge um, is number one, he's old uh, and not new in terms of a brand. Like Elizabeth Sanders is new, sounds new and fresh and exciting. Bernie's kind of old and stagnant. And the other problem is just Bernie. I think his health going to restrict him from running the kind of campaign that's necessary at at a presidential level. That's going to be his problem. So there were a couple interesting things that, that did happen uh, at this rally. There were two that I want to draw your attention to. AOC gave, she's actually not a bad speaker. She's actually decent. Uh, She gave a long winded speech to endorse Bernie Sanders as the OG socialist. She, I'm not going to bore you with all the things she said, but it would make most Americans want to vomit. She attacks the entire system of capitalism, saying the system that got us where we are today is fundamentally flawed and we need to shred it. Shred it? I mean, it's, uh, she goes on at one point. I'm not going to roll the clip because there were two others I do want to get to. And she talks about how the Waltons have us in chains and are making decisions about uh, have control over our lives. Uh, AOC newsflash. That's not how capitalism works. When, when 
it's actually the government that has control over your lives in a socialistic society. They decide the means of production and that that's, that's what the government, that's exactly what happens is you're saying you don't want somebody like the Waltons to have control of your life. Oh, okay. Let's just have this monolithic force decided by a few leaders that have zero experience, but might care a lot, but have zero experience in the private sector. And let's them make them decisions about which businesses survive, and how products are rationed and healthcare is delivered. Oh yeah. Oh, freaking great. What a mess. Okay. But I do want to talk about AOC uh, went on about her personal story and her, the moment that changed in her life is when she was able to go to a school outside her original neighborhood because her neighborhood didn't have a good school system. And if she hadn't moved, she wouldn't have had access to good schools. If she didn't have access to good schools, she would not be a big hot shot member of Congress and so educated. And in a bizarre way, she ends up making the argument for school choice and charter schools. Listen to this. At the quality of education in the Bronx. And they looked at 50% dropout rates. They looked at the inequity of education, the inequity of education funding, the fact that teachers weren't paid, the fact that kids weren't given their, their tools to succeed, and that, frankly, it not only had to do with their income, but it had to do with their melanin, too. And so they made, and my family made a really hard decision. And my whole family chipped in to buy a small house about 40 minutes north of here. And that's when I got my first taste of a country who allows their kids' destiny to be determined by the zip code that they are born in. And so much of my life was shuttled between these two worlds. And not just the two worlds between the Bronx and Westchester County, but the continental U.S., New York State, and the realities of Puerto Rico, where my family is too. And we saw the distinctions between these two worlds. I grew up where income inequality was an ingrained fact of life of my childhood. And it took everything in us to try to give that next generation a chance. Yep, you heard it. She's arguing for school choice. She's saying that if she couldn't get out of her neighborhood and go to another neighborhood with better schools, she would not have gotten a good education. She would know she would not be the big hotshot congressman, congresswoman that she is today. But here's what's so hypocritical. Number one, she has no idea she's making the argument for school choice, but that's exactly what she's doing. That is fundamentally why school choice uh, and and charter schools are so critically important because oftentimes zip codes are destiny for many families that don't have an option to go to private schools uh, and it gives them an opportunity to go elsewhere. Uh, but what's so hypocritical about what AOC is truly saying is that on the one hand, she's arguing essentially for, for school choice, but on the other hand, she spends all of her time and her fundraising and her finger wagging and her fist pumping 
standing up for teachers unions and public school systems that, that keep shackling these students from bad neighborhoods with underperforming schools. Instead of overhauling the system and rolling in charters with accountability and breaking up these teacher unions. Nope, nope, nope. She's empowering them. So uh, I just thought it was funny. She had no idea that she was actually arguing for charter schools. But then again, she's just a bartender. I mean, I don't think she really, uh, she has a lot of grand sweeping uh, conclusions that she gets from her liberal friends, but she doesn't actually understand uh, the policy prescriptions that will actually solve the problems. There was another speaker at the Bernie rally. I just have to draw your attention to the San Juan mayor, Carmen Cruz goes on to give this uh, rambling speech. Again, I will save you the trouble from having to listen to the whole thing. Unfortunately, I did listen to it. And she goes on and she's evolved the discussion on climate change. You're not going to believe how she frames this. Listen to this. I'll, I'll explain. I'm no climate change expert. I am a climate change survivor. Oh boy, where do I begin on this one? She starts out by saying she's no climate, she's no scientist. She's no, then she goes on to claim that all of these things about climate change are real, but she says she's no scientist. So how could she know if she's not a scientist, but she knows. So she's contradicting herself. The most shocking thing is she calls herself a climate change survivor. I mean, that's obviously stealing it from a rape survivor. Equating the two is just despicable. But I guess that's the latest uh, phraseology. That you, people are a climate change survivor if you've weathered any kind of weather event. You're a climate change survivor. <sighs> These people have lost their mind. I want to talk to uh, what the big thing on this weekend that was going on was this. Uh, the press conference that Mick Mulvaney, the White House chief of staff, had on Friday that kind of went off off the rails. Uh, by and large, it was fine until it wasn't. And Mick Mulvaney. Uh, poorly chose words that could easily be misconstrued to make believe that the president in fact did do a quid pro quo. And then Mick Mulvaney walked it back on the Sunday shows. Uh, and we've got a couple of clips to play with you, but I, I want to back up for just a second on this and explain the, what Mick Mulvaney was trying to say, although he said it very ineloquently. Uh, what he was trying to say was, uh, he said, quote, uh, political politics and foreign aid, those things, uh, those happen all, those decisions happen side by side all the time. Get over it. 
And he's right. Politics often, in fact, almost all the time, are directly intertwined with, uh, with aid and fund disbursement, whether it's foreign aid, domestic, uh, domestic programs, military decisions. It's all political to some degree. And Trump, what he was at, what he was asking for the favor from the, the Ukrainian was to get to cooperate with the U.S. Department of Justice in their ongoing effort to see what was going on in 2016 with the server, uh, some server that was supposedly hosted there in the Ukraine. Now, I don't, should the president had that conversation? Probably not. It was um, inappropriate, not illegal, but just inappropriate because now we're having this conversation. But the president did nothing wrong. We, the left overplays this. Well, well, you say there's no quid pro quo, but he said there was a quid pro quo. No, there actually wasn't. There was no mention of aid on the call. Um, and, uh, and the president still seems to be interested in what happened in 2016 as it relates to the, uh, the DNC's email server. Look. That issue, I think, has by and large been settled. Uh, we had a special prosecutor who basically got to the bottom of that. But if that's what the president wants, DOJ to cooperate with Ukraine, there is nothing unethical or illegal about that. Um, but Mick Mulvaney's press conference only made things worse. And then Trump's legal team on Friday, I think, only added fuel to this fire when they said a single state, a single sentence saying we have no knowledge and no cooperation with the chief of staff's press conference testimony. So what they're basically saying is Mick wasn't heard out of context. Mick admitted to something. That's what they're saying. And in fact, if you listen I've, wa- I've watched it several times back. If you listen to Mick Mulvaney's speech, he's actually, he hits it. It's pretty clear to me, but he says it in a very bad, you can see the intent. He says it in a backwards sort of way uh, that if somebody wants to misconstrue his words, they can. So Mick Mulvaney was on Fox News Sunday uh, on Sunday, and he was getting really grilled by Chris Wallace, the host. I want to want to play this this clip because it explains Mick Mulvaney trying to untangle the situation that he created on Friday. I'll tell you if it was effective or not. Listen to this. Everybody acknowledges that, at least I think most normal people do. It's completely legitimate to ask about that. Number two, it's legitimate to tie the aid to corruption. It's legitimate to tie the aid to foreign aid from other countries. That's what I was talking about with the three. Can I see how people took that the wrong way? Absolutely. But I never said there was a quid pro quo because there isn't. Again, Chris, you've been in these in these in these briefings. You know how back and forth it is. You know how rapid fire it is. Look to the facts on the ground, things that you can actually sort of certify and what what should put this issue to bed is that the money flowed without any connection whatsoever to the DNC but, but server. You, in your first answer, which I gave, you said that's why we held up the money. First, you just said here that it was for two reasons. Now you're acknowledging it was for three reasons. If you held up the money for three reasons, 
That was that's a quid pro quo. Uh, not, you got to satisfy on, us on those. Now, maybe the president backed off that, but that was the proposition here. No, I'm, I'm not acknowledging there's three reasons. Again, let's go back. You said three reasons. Go back to the. You can, I, I recognize that. Go back to what actually happened in the real world. And by the way, go to the phone call. Go to the phone call which we've released. I hope we get a chance to talk about that before the. I am going is over. to right now. You go to the phone call. The president never mentions the aid at all in the phone call. Doesn't say, oh, by the way, I need you to do this, 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 and this, or else uh, the money won't flow. Uh, we all know enough about this president that if, if he feels very strongly about something, he's going to put that out there uh, directly, and that didn't happen. It, so I, I don't know if this really undoes it. I think Mick's just trying to make the case, and he also says, look, everybody knows the president says what he thinks, and if he thought there would have been there needed to be a quid pro quo, he would have said it. He doesn't beat around the bush. I think Mick's absolutely right on this, but this is a problem uh, created by Mick's sloppy use of language compounded with Trump's legal team um, acting as if there was an admission of some wrongdoing, which there wasn't. Uh, so look, we'll see if Mick hangs on to his job after this. I don't know. I hear he's actually been pretty competent, but this is high stakes. You know, you have to be able to go into these press briefings and hold your own. I mean, I'm not sure I actually would have recommended that the chief of staff do that. I actually think this is a great place that Sarah Sanders kind of kept a lid on things, both with her tone as well as uh, her her way of de-escalation and also using words like the record speaks for itself. I've already gone over that. And the ways she doesn't get twisted in, into knots during a rapid fire question answer period. And that's what that was. I mean, I think it was 30 or 40 minutes of non-stop questions. I mean, hard-hitting questions of Mick. And uh, of course, on the one issue that's the hottest, Mick should have should have had that pre pre-rehearsed in his in his brain at least. So he didn't step on it. Um, another thing that happened on Sunday was Trump was under some fire. Again, Mick Mulvaney was adamantly defending Trump in the White House's decision to hold the G7 upcoming G7 conference at a Trump resort. And the theory was that number one, it wasn't Trump's idea that it was Mick says he, he sat at the table when it was a bunch of staffers ideas. They ended up bringing it to Trump at the very end and Trump greenlit it. But they say, number one, it wasn't his idea. Uh, number two, there's, this is not a, a violation of the emoluments clause, um, which the Democrats are going to scream about. Number three, this was simply a matter of selecting a good venue that's capable of holding such a conference. Look, the, I think it's fine if the president wanted to hold it. The problem is optics. The, in, the appearance of an impropriety is all this president doesn't need. And this is just feeding the mainstream media's insatiable hunger to attack this president as corrupt as if he's trying to make money off the president, which is hilarious to me because where were the, where was the mainstream media when, when Hillary was secretary of state and Bill Clinton was giving speeches in Russia for $800,000 a pop? Where were they? Oh, they were nowhere. They didn't seem to care about this, uh, purity test at that point. Um, but you know, the Hillary and the Clinton's came into the White House or left the White House completely broke and 
then throughout her career in public service as secretary of state, and others, they're all of a sudden worth several hundred million dollars. Oh no. Media doesn't ask questions about that, but a guy who comes in rich arguably doesn't care about money anymore because he's got enough to be fine. They're every moment they can take it is, Oh, well, he's just trying to personally enrich himself off of the government teat. I mean, it's just, this guy can't catch a break. However, the Trump team should not have selected this resort simply because of the optics, even if it is well-qualified and it appears to be, they shouldn't have done it. Um, what Mick Mulvaney said at the press conference actually made a lot of sense. He said, look, uh, a few years ago, it was held at Camp David and it was a terrible location because Camp David is not a equipped convention center. It was hours and hours away from the airport. Everybody was miserable because the food sucked and the rooms were old. And that all seems yeah, makes perfect sense. In fact, a modern convention hotel is the way to go for a G7 summit. It is a convention. So you should have all the modern amenities so that people have a nice experience, both the press staff and uh and and the diplomats that makes total sense and i bet you that the trump corral casino is a great place for that but unfortunately the name trump is on the hotel so the the accusations are going to fly so what happened was friday late in the evening the trump team despite mulvaney saying nope that's it president decided to do it not backing down the Trump team said, okay, what we'll do is uh, the Trump team, uh, Trump will make sure the hotel provides the summit at cost, meaning no profit will be made. They were trying to appease people. And then Sunday morning, the Trump White House said, actually, change of plans. We're not, they're not going to host it at a Trump property. They'll find someplace else to do it. So it was retreating caving to the pressure of where they saw was just going to escalate and they changed course. You know, it's unlike Trump actually to retreat from anything, but um, this one might not have been a bad idea because instead of having a bad weekend news cycle, this thing would have endured for a long time and you can see where it would have, could have gotten nasty the Congress would have demanded uh, employee records, cost breakdowns, you know, receipts, the whole thing. There would have been huge scrutiny on the resort and what the word cost means. Um, every employee in that building would have a camera right in their face. And these aren't trained media people. It just, um, it would have gone on and on and on and on and on. And given Pelosi and the Democrats and the mainstream media, uh, not just a news cycle, but weeks and weeks and months of corruption allegations that the president just doesn't need to deal with. Uh, so they they backtrack, probably the right thing. But again, this is a self-inflicted error. It shouldn't have happened in the first place. Something else I'm watching is Kamala Harris went on CNN over the weekend and absolutely choked. Not that it matters because her campaign is I think it has two feet in the coffin already. I mean, she's at 2% in Iowa, despite her living, actually relocating her campaign to Iowa. I, I mean, she's just completely falling apart. 
But it's getting even worse when Anderson asks Kamala specifically what what laws Trump has been violating and broken because you say he should go to jail. She can't come up with any laws. Listen to this. Are, are there specific laws you believe Giuliani has broken or may have broken? Well, I, I, I don't know. We're going to find out. But I, I don't I think that the range includes not only um, abuse of power and, and perhaps a misstatement and mischaracterization of his role and his responsibilities. But I also really do wonder just instinctively whether there's been any bribery associated with Giuliani's conduct. I think there are a number of questions to be asked. And, and once the facts are, are, are transparent and have been available for Congress at the very beginning to see, I think we'll know what laws have been broken. In other words, she has no idea. She thinks this guy should be prosecuted and go to jail. She can't tell you a single law he's broken. But let me tell you, when the investigation is complete, I know he'll have broken laws. Can you imagine if a district attorney treated you like that? Well, you haven't broken any laws yet, but we're going to tear apart your whole life, destroy your reputation publicly, And I'm sure that by the time we're done, we're going to find a law that you've broken and we're going to prosecute you, put you in jail for that. She's a district attorney, a former DA. She she was the attorney general. You know, I used to chuckle at the left's memes calling her Kamala the cop, that she was overbearing and unfair. And now, God, I'm starting to believe it. It's crazy. Well, I don't know, but I'm sure I'm sure he has broken some laws. <laughs> oh, geez. Well, luckily, she won't be president. But might be what what we do need to watch for is if a Democrat does win, I wouldn't be surprised if she's either put on the vice presidential ticket or if she's appointed attorney general of the United States. That is scary, given the conduct and how she's behaving. So that's been this episode of The Thomas Guide. Thanks so much for listening. Um, Really appreciate, again, all of the reviews and the feedback. The best thing you can do is I just embedded uh, some share buttons on theteaguide.com. You can click share to your socials, whether it's Twitter or Facebook, to share an episode. Because honestly, that's the best thing you can do to help grow this podcast is just to share it either on your socials or with one friend that you think will enjoy the podcast. That's how we do it. One share at a time. And on whatever platform you're uh, you're listening to, you can share. So thanks again for listening. We'll catch you tomorrow with another episode. Have a great day.